Welcome to Reaching Your Peak, an educational storytelling mini-series of the Elk Talk podcast. This is Corey Jacobson, and today I'm going to be sharing a story from one of my previous do-it-yourself public land elk hunts, and then breaking down a strategy or a tactic that was instrumental in the success of that hunt. Reaching Your Peak is brought to you by Peak Refuel. If you're looking for delicious freeze-dried meals that are made with 100% real ingredients, including premium USDA meats, you've probably already heard of Peak Refuel. Their meals have nearly twice as much protein as the competition, which is important for fueling your body in the backcountry. There's no fillers, no empty calories, just premium nutrition that truly meets the needs of elk hunters. And the taste is second to none. My personal favorites are their homestyle chicken and rice and the beef stroganoff, but they have a huge selection of other incredible meals like chicken alfredo, biscuits and gravy, chicken coconut curry, sweet pork and rice, mountain berry granola, and a whole lot more. If you want to taste the difference, visit peakrefuel.com and use the promo code ELKTALK to save 15% and get free shipping on your next order. Welcome back to another episode of Reaching Your Peak. And for those of you who were at the Total Archery Challenge in Utah a couple weeks ago, thanks so much for coming up and saying hi. It was uh, great to meet so many of you and uh, had a great time at the RMEF banquet on Saturday night there and uh, raised some great money for conservation and for elk. So thanks so much for coming out. Uh, One more opportunity to uh, meet up. I'm going to be in Bozeman at the Sitka Depot on Saturday, August 12th. So I'll be doing an elk calling seminar and we'll also be premiering the film from my Colorado elk hunt last year uh, at the depot. So it all starts at three o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, August 12th, and uh, it'll run till six or seven o'clock or whenever we decide to wrap it up but they're going to have drinks and appetizers and raffles and a bunch of really cool stuff to uh, kick off elk season which is less than a month away i can't believe it's already august and uh, we're going to be chasing elk in a matter of just a few weeks so let's uh, jump in and take a look at another elk hunting story The bull stopped at the top of the opening just 60 yards above me on the hillside. He scanned the area where I was set up looking for the source of the calling. I glanced down at my bowstring and the arrow I had just secured into place at the knocking point. I looked at my sight pins, then back to my fingers, focusing on the three that were tightly wrapped around the string. There was just one small fir tree between me and the bull, and if he came down the hill that far, That would be my last opportunity to draw. As the bull stepped out of the brush, he dropped his head to sniff the ground and then continued down the hill in my direction. I took a slow, deep breath as the tension that was building in my shoulders transferred its way down my arms and into my fingertips, putting pressure on the bowstring, ready to draw as soon as the opportunity presented itself. It was August 30th, opening morning of the 2008 archery elk season here in my home state of Idaho, but 
I wasn't hunting, at least not officially. I had drawn a premium elk tag in Arizona, my second time drawing an Arizona elk tag, and I was looking forward to hunting big bulls there in a couple weeks. Two seasons prior to this hunt, my normal elk hunting area had been closed to all activity due to wildfires. I was in a bind and not sure where I was going to hunt that season until a co-worker named Donnie Drake shared with me an area that he had hunted and where he had gotten into elk several times in the past. My first morning in his area that season, I'd shot a small 5x6 bull and told him I would repay him for his generosity by hunting with him the next season. In 18 or 19 years of archery hunting for elk, Donnie had yet to fill a tag, so I was determined to help him achieve that goal. The following September, we did get a chance to hunt together, but it was rough hunting, and we didn't end up with any opportunities during the seven or eight days that we had to chase elk together. Coincidentally, I did shoot a nice bull the day after Donnie had to return home for work, so we made a plan to hunt together again the next season. The night before elk season that next year, we'd camped next to our truck and made a plan to wake up well before daylight to hike up the bottom of a long, narrow canyon that came to an end near where we had parked. We left the truck a good hour before daylight on opening morning, filled with anticipation of hearing the bugles that I was just sure we were going to find a few miles up that remote canyon. But just three or four hundred yards into our hike, Donnie caught my attention with a soft whistle, so I stopped and waited for him to catch up to me. He sheepishly approached and told me that he had inadvertently forgotten his release back at the truck and that he needed to hike back down the mountain to retrieve it, and then he'd catch back up to me. I looked over at the eastern horizon and could see that the skyline was already starting to lighten, so I knew daylight was going to wait for no one, especially not for someone who had forgotten one of the most important pieces of bow hunting gear. So I quickly unstrapped my release, and as I handed it to him, I told him he could use mine since he was the primary shooter that day anyway. If we got lucky enough to call in two bulls in one setup, he could shoot first, and then I'd just grab my release from him before we called in the second bull. In addition to being in debt to Donnie for the intel he had so generously shared a couple seasons earlier, he had also volunteered to take two weeks off from work this season during the middle of September to accompany me on my Arizona elk hunt. His selflessness was beginning to have ramifications at the expense of my own selfishness. Donnie started strapping on my release and then stopped and informed me that my release was right-handed and it wouldn't fit him because he was left-handed. It was still a little early in the morning and with the short night's sleep, I was struggling to comprehend what he was saying. I'm sure I had a really puzzled look on my face, and since he had already tested my patience by forgetting his release, he quickly laughed and told me he was just kidding. It turns out that releases aren't exclusive to right or left-handing. Around 45 minutes after daylight, we crested a steep rocky incline and popped out at the edge of a large flat meadow that was a good three miles from our truck. I'd bugled a few times on the hike in, but being in the bottom of the canyon and next to the creek, we hadn't been able to hear any responses, but here in the flat meadow, the creek was pretty much silent, and my first bugle was answered by a mature-sounding bull up on the left side of the canyon. He was slightly back downstream from us and probably four or five hundred yards up the hill. We stood there for several seconds listening to see if the bull would bugle again and heard a second, smaller-sounding bull bugle from over on the same side of the canyon. 
the second bull was just slightly up the stream from us, but it sounded like he was at about the same level on the mountain as the first bull. So we quickly decided to move up the mountain and try to get between the two bulls before we set up and started calling. The thermals were still coming solidly down the mountain, so we'd be able to set up in a way that would allow us to hopefully be able to call in both bulls and hopefully get a shot at whichever one came in, or if we were lucky, whichever one came in first. We hiked up the hillside, uh, probably 100 yards or so, and came to a little bench that had a really good, uh, well-used game trail on it. And the bigger sounding bull was still off to our left and still slightly up the hill, and the second, smaller sounding bull was pretty much directly above us, but he was quite a bit farther up the hill than the bigger sounding bull. So I had Donnie drop down probably 30 yards or so below the bench and to my left to get set up, anticipating that that more aggressive bull would most likely make it to our setup first and provide Donnie with a shot as he came in along the game trail on the bench. I just set my bow down next to an old rotten log on the hillside and looked around for a good stick that I'd be able to use to rake a tree with. And I noticed one laying there on the ground eight or ten yards away, so I walked over and picked it up, and there was a tree right there. So I uh, started thrashing a tree and then let out a bugle. And the big bull to our left fired back immediately. So I bugled back, challenged him, and after a couple back-and-forth bugles, he was over halfway down the hillside, almost to the bench that Donnie was set up below. And I was so locked in on this bull that I hadn't been paying any attention to the smaller bull that had bugled a couple more times from the hill straight up above me. As soon as I started raking the dead pine tree again with my raking stick, the second bull bugled a timid bugle, but he was less than 100 yards above me. I glanced over and could see my bow laying there on the ground 8 or 10 yards away and realized that it wouldn't do me any good to go over and grab it even if the bull did come in. Donnie had my release and he was still a good 30 or 40 yards away from me and out of sight. Even if we'd been able to see each other, we wouldn't have been able to move because the bulls were just too close to us to take a chance. Both of the bulls were what I would consider to be inside the red zone and I was pretty sure that something was going to happen and it was probably going to happen really quickly. I glanced up the hill in the direction of that smaller sounding bull and decided to jump over and pick up my bow just in case. I had shot a compound bow with fingers a bit in the past even as recently as earlier that summer but I knew that my accuracy was severely hampered and I wouldn't dare shoot at an elk without a release unless it was under 20 yards and in an ideal set up. I was sure the bull to our left was going to be in Donnie's lap before the bull above me made his way down the open hillside, but I knew it was better to be safe than sorry. So I reached down and picked up the bow just as the bull to our left bugled, and instantly the bull that was up above me bugled back in response to the first bull. So I just gave a few soft cow calls, hopefully to entice them in closer, knowing that pretty soon they'd be able to pinpoint my exact location. I reached down and picked up my bow just as the bull that was off to our left let out a bugle. And instantly, the smaller sounding bull up above me bugled back at the first bull. And I just gave a few soft cow calls, hopefully to entice them in a little bit closer without, you know, trying to give away my exact location. And a few seconds later, I looked up and caught movement directly above me from that second bull as he kind of weaved through a, a little patch of really small, probably head-high fir trees 
directly up the hill from me. The bull stopped up at the top of the opening, probably 60 yards or so straight above me. And as he got to the edge of those small firs and stopped, he started scanning the area where I was set up. And no doubt he knew uh, pretty much directly where the cow calls had come from and couldn't see a cow uh, down there. So I thought, there's no way he's going to come in any closer to me. If anything, he'll circle around towards that other bull. And I took my eyes off of him and looked down at the bowstring, and I just put an arrow uh, on the knocking point and glanced up at my sight pins and back to my fingers and focused on my three fingers that I had tightly wrapped around the bowstring. There was just one small fir tree that was between me and that bull. And if he happened to come down the hillside to that fir tree, when he went behind it, that would be my last opportunity to draw. Other than that, we would be right out in the wide open with each other. The bull took a step out of the little fir trees that he had been standing in and dropped his head down to sniff the ground. And then, to my surprise, turned and continued straight down the hill in my direction. I took a slow, deep breath and kind of lifted the bow up a little. could feel the tension that was building in my shoulders and back transfer its way down my arms and into my fingertips and put pressure on the bowstring, ready to draw as soon as that bull walked behind the only obstacle that was left between me and him. The smaller bull that had been moving in so timid and slowly now was moving quickly down the hill, almost like he was racing to beat the other bull into our setup. And within a matter of just seconds, he moved behind that last fir tree that was between me and him. I was 40 yards away, and once the bull cleared that fir tree, there wasn't going to be anything other than the cold, crisp September air between us. So as soon as he went behind the tree, I came to full draw and remembered how odd it felt to draw and hold a bowstring on a compound bow with just my fingers. As I came to full draw, the bull stepped out from behind the tree and stopped. I didn't have any choice at that point. Letting down wasn't an option, at least not if I didn't want the bull to see me move. Fortunately, the bull that was to our left bugled, and as soon as he did, the bull right above me just continued straight down the hill, coming straight at me. At this point, I started thinking, this might really happen, and up till that point, I really hadn't been too nervous because I hadn't planned on being the shooter. This other bull was coming down. I was really focused on getting the bull to our left coming in front of Donnie. But I knew if the bull got within 20 yards and was broadside, I'd have a good chance of, of making a good shot. But as he got to 20 yards, he didn't turn broadside. He just kept coming straight down the hill right at me. I could feel the bowstring starting to cut into the grooves of my fingers, and being below the bull on the hillside, he seemed to just get bigger and bigger with every step. And when he finally stopped, he was less than 10 yards away, and it felt like he was towering over me up there on the hill above me. The bull was scanning the broken up timber directly behind me, and his eyes were moving back and forth, and it was almost like he was looking right through me. He didn't even pause or slow down as he scanned across and, and came across me. My anchor point made it impossible for me to look through my peep comfortably and be able to find my pins. So I basically just looked right down the arrow and lined it up with the center of his throat. It all seemed to happen just automatically. 
and as the string slid off the tips of my fingers, I watched my arrow bury full length into the front of his neck. And instinctually, I just let out a couple cow calls to calm him down. And the bull whirled and ran, but only went eight or ten yards. And when I cow called, he stopped and turned around, looking directly at me again, facing me straight on. He stood there looking right at me, and blood was just pouring out of the front of his neck. It was like water coming out the end of a garden hose. You could hear the sound of his blood pouring onto the ground. And that sound is something I'll never forget and something I'd never seen in my life up till this point. I locked eyes there with the bull for probably a good 10 seconds, just frozen, silent, watching this incredible amount of blood just pour out. And after about 10 seconds, the bull just tipped straight over, legs still straight, like he didn't even realize that he was falling. But he did fall, and he fell right off the edge of the bench and straight down the steep hillside right above Donnie. The hillside that Donnie was set up on was covered with thick alders, and as the bull crashed to the ground and started rolling down the hillside, Donnie had no idea what was going on or what had just happened. All he heard was this crashing coming down the hillside through the thick alders, and he knew that there had been at least one bull up above him that hadn't bugled for a little while. So he's taken a step backwards. He comes to full draw just as my bull rolls out of the alders and stops literally just four or five yards away from Donnie. I'd called in elk that others had shot with a frontal shot before this season, but this was my first time actually sending an arrow of my own through the thoracic opening on an elk. And the devastation that I saw at just 10 yards away was impossible to deny. The total time from my shot to the dead elk laying on the ground was less than 15 seconds. And the blood loss from that shot was the most incredible thing I had ever seen as an archery hunter. When it comes to elk hunting success, confidence is critical. And confidence in my gear and my equipment is something I'm just not willing to compromise. And that's why I shoot a Prime bow. As a mechanical engineer, when I first saw the technology Prime was designing into their bows, I was intrigued. Cam lean had always been an issue on other bows I'd shot, which made tuning the bows and ultimately getting consistent arrow flight nearly impossible. But four shots into my first Prime bow, it was tuned and my arrows were flying perfectly. The draw cycle was smooth and the back wall was solid. And they didn't stop there. In the years since I've started shooting a prime bow, they've added center shot technology, which allows the bow to lock on the target and keeps my pins from wandering around. They've also recently designed a new cam that completely eliminates cam lean that was previously caused by the offset cable design. Prime bows are continually leading the way when it comes to new technology and technology that makes a difference, not just some marketing gimmick that a marketing department can use to advertise a new model. There's no doubt that the stability of my Prime bow has improved my accuracy, extended my range, and increased my confidence. To learn more about Prime stability or to shoot one for yourself, visit your local bow shop or go to g5prime.com. And now, Back to reaching your peak.
I don't share this story with you to start a debate about the ethicality of a frontal shot or to attempt to solve the argument that exists between a lot of hunters regarding a frontal shot, but I'll simply state that there's a massive amount of blood that circulated between an elk's heart and its brain. And in my experience, a well-placed frontal shot is going to sever multiple arteries and veins and provide a blood trail that usually doesn't even need to be followed. But before anyone should ever decide to take a frontal shot, it's important to know the size of your target, what you're aiming for, and what obstacles might be there standing in your way. If you're considering taking a frontal shot on an elk, you need to visualize where you'd want to aim if you're shooting at the elk when he's broadside, midway up the body, vertically, and tight behind the shoulder. Then if you slide that point of impact around to the front of the elk, you'll see that you're really aiming kind of in the center of the neck when the elk has his head up. I used to hear a lot of bow hunters talk about frontal shots, and they would suggest aiming for that area on the elk where the lighter brown hair of the body transitions up to that darker, longer mane on the neck. Or they'd say to find that bump that you can see on the front of the elk, but that bump is actually the sternum. And aiming there or at the transition from the light brown hair to the dark brown hair is too low, especially for a bow hunter. That bump or the sternum is the point where the ribs all connect at the front of the rib cage. And the bump you see low on the elk's neck is actually a mass of really tightly connected bone and cartilage. An arrow that hits the sternum has a really high chance of glancing off to the side and then sliding down between the rib cage and the leg bone back behind the front quarter without ever making it into the chest cavity or just hitting the sternum and not being able to penetrate through that mass of bone and cartilage. Ideally, if you are going to take a frontal shot, you want to hit the thoracic opening. And this is that unobstructed opening that leads straight through the neck into the thoracic cavity, which is where all the vital organs are going to be located. An arrow that penetrates through that opening will typically sever the carotid artery that supplies blood to the brain, as well as the jugular vein that transports that blood back to the heart. Plus, an arrow will usually continue straight through that opening and still catch the lungs and other vital organs. And if your arrow penetrates far enough, it can also take out organs inside the abdominal cavity. More than one time, I've watched my arrow bury all the way out of sight into the thoracic opening. And when we're cutting up the elk afterwards, I found my broadhead buried in the hip bone after it also severed the femoral artery. That spells complete devastation. And an elk that's shot like this will absolutely not make it 100 yards. If it does, you didn't hit that opening. You didn't get all the way in there and cut all of those arteries and veins and hit the vitals. The thoracic opening starts just above the sternum, just above that bump. And from the sternum, it goes upwards probably about 8 inches on an average bull elk. And the width of the thoracic opening is typically about 5 or 6 inches. A lot of bow hunters have said that the size of the opening is the size of a tennis ball. But a better reference, an actual measured reference that I've done multiple times on dissected elk is probably more similar to the size and the shape of a football. 
I do want to point out that the vital area on the frontal shot is not just limited to the thoracic opening. If the elk is straight onto you and your arrow hits to the left or the right of the opening though, especially if you also hit a little low, the arrow is likely to just slide down between the rib cage and the leg bone and never enter inside the body cavity. Or if you hit right squarely on the sternum on a straight on frontal shot, there's a lot of mass, a lot of bone and cartilage there that's going to be difficult for that arrow to penetrate. If the elk's slightly quartering to you though, you do gain a little more margin for error on that side to side target because your arrow can easily break through and penetrate the small ribs that surround the thoracic opening up there at the front of the rib cage. The biggest obstacle on a shot like this is going to be that big leg bone that sits right there on each side of the rib cage. Again, it's critical that you envision where the vitals are inside the cavity and adjust your point of impact according to that visual, keeping in mind that if the elk is slightly quartering to you, the vitals aren't going to be sitting straight inside that opening. A really sharp quartering to shot is going to be really heavily protected by the leg and shoulder bone, and it won't leave you much of a target at all. Shooting behind the shoulder when the bull is quartering really sharply to you isn't a really good shot. You're likely going to just catch one lung and then pass through and come out back in the abdominal cavity, which is the guts. And it's definitely not a high percentage shot, and it's one that's definitely not going to provide very much of a blood trail to follow. My discussion here of the frontal shot is not meant to encourage you or discourage you from taking the shot. It's simply meant to provide education so that you can understand the obstacles that need to be considered, as well as where the vitals that you need to hit are located. And with that knowledge, it's then the responsibility of each bow hunter to determine their level of confidence on shot opportunities and to only choose to take shots that you know are going to provide you with a high chance for a quick, clean kill. Due to the proximity of so many arteries and veins in that thoracic opening on an elk, there's no blood trail that's going to be as devastating as those from a well-executed frontal shot. As impressive as the blood trail is, I've never needed to follow one because the elk usually falls over within sight. Maybe not as dramatically as the case in the story I just shared where the bull turns around and stands there looking at me just 10 yards away, but I've never had one go more than 100 yards. I have witnessed frontal shots not go according to plan though, and there are two main areas that really prevent frontal shots from working out. Hitting too far to the side, or hitting too low. I've seen full pass-through arrows that entered the front of the elk and exited behind the front shoulder without ever penetrating the body cavity or hitting anything vital. If the arrow hits even a little more toward the outside of the opening, it's going to contact the front of the big leg bone and get very little penetration. A frontal shot that hits too low is generally going to produce a lot of blood for the first two or three hundred yards and this is due to all the blood vessels that run through those muscles that are down there in the brisket. The blood trail from a shot like that is no doubt going to raise your excitement level right off and you'll swear there's no way an elk can live after losing that much blood. 
but unfortunately that blood trail usually dries up after just two or 300 yards and the hit's typically not lethal because your arrow just doesn't make it inside the chest cavity. Again, my discussion on the frontal shot is not meant to persuade you that you need to be taking these shots. And it's not meant to justify or defend my personal taking of these shots or anyone else who takes those shots. It's simply meant to help educate you so that you can make an educated decision on whether or not this shot is for you. A broadside shot on an elk has obstacles. You've got the shoulder and the leg bone to the front. You've got the guts and the abdominal cavity behind. It has the brisket area below and it has an area up above the lungs that also is not vital if you hit it. The difference between a broadside shot and a frontal shot is the size of the target. On a broadside elk, the vital area is usually about 12 inches by 16 inches. And this is a lot bigger than a six inch by eight inch area on a frontal shot. In fact, it's about four times bigger. So there's no doubt that a much larger margin for error exists on a broadside shot. But for a bow hunter who is proficient and knows where to aim and knows their limits, the frontal shot does add one more option for increasing shot opportunities on elk. When it comes to deciding to take a frontal shot, it's no more a matter of ethics than a broadside shot. All shots that we take on an elk are a matter of ethics and maybe more appropriately, a matter of responsibility. We owe it to the animals that we hunt to provide the most lethal, quick, effective kill that we can. And I'll tell you right now, in 35 plus years of experience, if an elk stops inside 20 yards from me and he's straight on or slightly quartering to me, I have more confidence in the outcome of a frontal shot than any other shot that exists. So study the anatomy of an elk and educate yourself on where to aim and how to effectively execute any shot that you decide to take. And until next time, I'll see you guys on the next ridge or mountaintop or wherever the elk are bugling.